1: The show that brings you in where the magic happens. Welcome to The Writer's Room. Hello and welcome to SIF Pop Writer's Room. I'm your host Aaron, but not that Aaron, of course. And today I'm joined by SIF Pop Writer Robert. Hello. Hey, how you doing today?
0: I'm doing great. Thanks for having me back on.
1: Of course, man. It was a great time having you on last time, and I'm excited to talk about more goats with you today. But uh, we write for SipPop.com provided you with movie reviews, best ever challenges, and other interesting movie-related articles. (sighs) Breathe there. Okay. (laughs) So make sure you check out the website, SipPop.com, to keep up with those. We have a great show for you this week. We're going to start off here in the pitch, which is now. That's great. We're on schedule so far. Can't promise too much after that, as always. Uh, we'll soon move on to the coming attractions, where we'll give our thoughts on what's coming out soon, and then we're going to go on to our Sift topic this week, which we're going to be doing GOATS again. We'll be talking about the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly and Dead Poets Society, and then we're going to explore the B-plot. We have a question from Robert's wife this week, and then we're going to wrap up with a spin-off, but first, let's get a chance to know our writer this week. Now, normally what we do is we ask this question, uh, tell us about your movie experience and tell us about how you started getting writing for SIF Pop, but for Robert, we've already heard that twice, so... Uh, for the next couple of months, we're going to be doing something a little bit different. Robert, will you tell me about your podcast? You've mentioned Robert's Thoughts MovieCast on the show before, but will you tell us a little bit more specifically kind of what that show is like?
0: Yeah. So I have a biweekly podcast that I host on my own. Every episode, I have a different guest. Um, sometimes it's just me, but most of the time I'll have a guest either for a full episode or uh, I'll have a couple people hop in and out like Aaron has been on a couple of times and, and we talked about Star Wars, Planet of the Apes normally I just try to get into a topic that I really love. So it'll be something like, for example, Star Wars we did on May 4th. So I'll go based on some sort of anniversary or birthday. Uh, if it's a birthday, I'll go with uh, an actor or a director and break down their filmography and talk about what I like about that sort of thing. So yeah, it's, it's just this fun bi-weekly podcast. I try to keep it light, try to keep it uh, enjoyable and fun. And I try to have Entertaining guests and yeah, that's about it. We we have a lot of fun talking about movies on there. And if you want to hear how we can bring Paddington into a conversation about Planet of the Apes, look up our Planet of the Apes episode.
1: Yeah, it's been a great time every episode. But Robert, I was doing this thing this past week. I was trying to build up my letterbox profile, and I was trying to like yeah, you know, I'm trying to to add ratings that I've just never done before because I've used the letterboxed for lists but never for ratings, and I kind of want to start doing ratings on both INDV as well as Letterboxd. I I didn't know where to start, so I looked at your profile, and I just started seeing movies that you rated, and I could just use that as a basis, and for the most part, I think we're pretty much about the same, which is kind of shocking to me, because when we first started interacting, we had very differing opinions on movies. For the most part, I found within one star, we're kind of on most movies, but there was a couple that I just had to ask, what gives? And uh, so that's what we're going to do with this other part of Get to Know Our Writer this week, and... Robert, I got to know, Gone Baby Gone, what gives? You're ripping on my yeah. seventh favorite movie of all time. You give it a three out of five stars.
0: Because that's one that I've only seen one time. Um, I'm actually probably going to start a new series on my blog, talk like going back and, and revisiting movies that are supposed to be great that I didn't love the first time I saw it. Um, and that's going to be one of the first ones I do. I don't, I don't know. I saw it one time. I really don't remember a lot about it. I think I was Home Alone eating wings or something like that. So I wasn't able to pay too great attention to it because I love chicken wings. And it's definitely one that I'm going to go back to because it's almost completely gone from my brain, except from a, except for a couple images from the very end.
1: Yeah, uh, that ending just sticks with you. It's impossible to get that out of your head.
0: Sometimes there, there's a lot of movies like that that I watched too young that I wasn't able to, you know, understand and follow the story the right way. And for some reason, when I was younger, like, especially my teen years, I didn't understand crime movies the way I was supposed to. Like, I didn't understand why are they going to talk to this person now? And what does this person have to know about what's going on? How does this person relate to the interrogation and all that? I think Baby Gone was one of those examples, which is why I'll definitely rewatch it.
1: Well, hey, whenever you do, you got to make sure to tweet at me because I got to know how that holds up.
0: Yeah, I'll definitely do that.
1: You're going to have to explain yourself a little bit harder on this one because you've got my third favorite movie of all time at a one and a half stars with Whiplash. What (laughs) gives, Robert?
0: Whiplash. I thought... Here we go. This is going to be the first one of that series I was just talking about. I have the Blu-ray. I just bought it last week. I'm not even joking. Man, I saw La La Land first. And La La Land is top 10 or 15 all time for me. Um, So it set a really high bar for a Damien Damien Chazelle movie. And Whiplash is one of the kinds of movies where I appreciated what was going on up until he gets in the car crash and then gets up and walks to practice or to his performance or whatever it is. It just completely lost me on the logic sense. Um, And by the end of that, I, I remember feeling just very annoyed that the logic just wasn't lining up. The realism was perfect up until that point. And all of a sudden he gets in a car crash where the car's rolling and he gets all beat up. And then I'm just like, what is going on from that point out? That's another one where the ending really frustrated me. I've come to appreciate it a little bit more. I should go back and and adjust that rating. It's definitely better than one and a half. I'd probably put it at about three stars at this point. Um, Hopefully it'll go up once I rewatch it.
1: man. And again, I hope it does. And the two movies that I happen to pick, I mean, you're talking, these are arguably the two best movie endings of all time, in my opinion. Gone Baby Gone for sure is top five for me. And I think Whiplash, just, to me, that ending is poetry. Um, and as a drummer, I mean, of course, a movie about a drummer is going to be on my list. I just didn't expect it to yeah. be this stinking good. So
0: With our last episode on Seven Samurai and then this episode now, I'm just being exposed for all my bad takes.
1: Hey, it's all right. I'm going to have a bad take later. I just, I know for sure I am. So I can't wait. I have one more question for you just before we get on to the show. Is that uh, yeah. Do you know of any examples that you can think of that you know that the movies are actually better than the book
0: I might actually go ahead and say Lord of the Rings um it's kind of odd how often I'm able to bring up Lord of the Rings on almost every podcast recording I do but I just finished the Fellowship of the Ring literally today and the book was better than I remembered I only read it once in high school but I still think that the movie is better it's like splitting hairs because I think they're both 10 out of 10 for their own. Uh, for their own mediums, but I, I just prefer the film of Lord of the Rings better because Tolkien can kind of get sidetracked explaining, you know, histories and and uh, landscapes, whereas he should have kind of kept that sort of stuff for the Silmarillion instead of Lord of the Rings, in my opinion.
1: Right. Well, and also, you know, it takes you three hours to watch Fellowship of the Ring versus...
0: A month to read the book.
1: Exactly. So I also read the Lord of the Rings in High School. I, quote-unquote read them in high school i watched uh, or i i got about 70 pages in of reading every line and i couldn't do it anymore so i started reading the first sentence of every paragraph unless there was dialogue and to me that's the ideal way to read lord of the rings but somebody on this podcast is freaking out right now somebody listening is just screaming in their car and and if that's you then that's fine but (laughs) that is just
0: There's Aaron's bad take.
1: that's that's actually wasn't planning on being my bad take. But maybe, (laughs) I mean, you also know I'm not the biggest fan of the first Lord of the Rings of Fellowship. But I think for me, a great example of a movie that's better than a book is Fight Club. I think that they're both great in their own regard. But the movie takes the source material and and really elevates it to be something different. And the book uh, gives a little, some depth in some other situations. It's a really short read, which to me is great i love it. it's maybe 200 pages they are very similar they just um there is a little bit different with the third act gotcha so uh it's, it's worth a read because you could read it in a weekend so
0: mm-hmm. yeah yeah maybe I'll, maybe i'll give it a try someday.
1: very good well, let's uh let's move on with the show we're going to move on to the coming attraction and before we actually get on to our coming attraction which is Mulan this week this is a great opportunity for us to to maybe make a clarifying statement and more so maybe from me than for you guys but uh, we're going to go ahead and COVID has screwed up the entire schedule for movies that are coming out and they've, they've affected them since all the way back in March, all the way up till I mean, there's movies that are being pushed back at the end of the year, uh, even some that have been pushed back that are supposed to come out next year because production is halted. And so it's just, it's a really, really, really interesting time to be starting a podcast right now, especially when you talk about movies that are coming out soon. And we've been pretty creative with shifting them in accordance with that, but I just, for movies that are going to be moved back, but only for a couple of weeks, we're going to go ahead and just do them when they were scheduled to release. And a big example of that is going to be Tenet. We were supposed to do Tenant last week when I had Shane on, because that was the week it was initially supposed to come out. And then it got pushed back to back to July 31st, and I put it on the schedule for next week's episode, and then it got pushed back again. And I just decided, like, I can't keep doing this to the schedule. It's, it's, it's too much for me to try to track. And so... The, the other the other thing is Tenet has been finished since probably, what, April, knowing Christopher Nolan, at least? Yeah, probably. So the movie is not going to change. The only thing that might change is a little bit of marketing, which they're, they're not going to re- release any more trailers. They're just going to release more posters or whatever. So nothing about the movie itself is going to change. So it's not going to affect our excitement for the movie. And so for movies that are being pushed back, I mean, even Mulan is not coming out this week because it got pushed back. This was... It was originally supposed to come out in March, and it was supposed to be this week, and then it got pushed back even further. And who knows? It might get pushed back further again. But if it comes out now or a year from now, it's going to be the same movie we're supposed to get in March. And so for that for that reason, we're just going to keep on uh, doing these with the schedule unless they get pushed back. A great recent example is Halloween Kills. That got pushed back an entire year, so I'm taking that off the schedule. We'll talk about that in a year But for the most part, at least during this COVID time, allow a little bit of grace and allow a a little bit of flexibility with me, and uh, I would very much appreciate that. Now that we've got that out of the way, let's talk a little bit about Mulan. So Mulan is a story about a young Chinese maiden disguises herself as a male warrior in order to save her father, a live-action feature film based off of Disney's classic Mulan. Robert, uh, based off of everything you've seen about this movie, what's your anticipation for this movie? Are you Are going to catch it opening weekend, matinee, rant streaming, or just not interested in this movie? And, of course, pandemic aside.
0: Right. I'll preface this by saying I haven't always been the biggest fan of the Disney live-action remakes. Like I didn't go to see Dumbo, Lion King, or Aladdin last year because after I saw Jungle Book and Beauty and the Beast, I realized that they were pretty uninspired and soulless, and I just didn't want to give my money that to that sort of thing. Because they're so similar to the originals. And that goes for Aladdin and The Lion King from what I've heard. Feel free to come into my Twitter mentions and tell me I'm an idiot for not watching them and having an opinion on them. But for Mulan, Mulan was one of my favorite movies growing up as a little kid. Um, there were certain movies that my parents could just put put on the TV and no, I'd be occupied. Toy Story was one of those and Mulan was another one. I really loved it and I still do. So I was... Kind of hesitant when I saw that that was the next one that was going to come out for live action, but then I saw the trailer and saw that it's completely devoid of music, uh, in a mu- in like a musical movie sense. Uh, there's no Mushu, There's there's not any of that kind of stuff. So that really actually makes me very excited. That along with the trailer actually looking legitimately very good. So pandemic aside, if this was you know perfectly healthy, no no health risk. I would definitely be going to see this opening weekend.
1: Yeah. Um, I struggle between opening weekend and matinee for me because I, I approach this. I'm cautiously optimistic about this movie. So uh, for for record's sake, I'll go ahead and say like matinee, but probably still pretty soon. Yeah, you know, We watched the both Mulans actually about April, kind of when things were still in full lockdown. And I had seen them as a kid, uh, at least the first one. I don't think I'd ever seen the second one, which... You don't have to, but my wife really likes it for some reason. And it was better than I expected, but still a five out of 10 is not great. So right, yeah. this came out in 1997, right?
0: 98.
1: 98. Okay. So I was three when this came out. So this would have been kind of right up my wheelhouse. I'd seen the movie a couple of times enough to know the basic plot structure, but I don't, I didn't remember any of the songs, which is a travesty until high school when all of a sudden I'll be, I'll make a man out of you is just. Going on, going on trips with people, and that's on everybody's playlist. So getting reacquainted with that song and "Girl Worth Fighting For." That's one of my other favorites. I do think that the rest of the soundtrack is fairly forgettable. I think that "I'll Make a Man Out of You" is just so good, though, that it elevates the Mm -hmm. rest of it. That's kind of my my history with with that. But I I was I had the same thought when when I saw the trailer was I'm upset that there's no music because I do want to see the music here, but also I think that can lend itself to actually be more of a story and actually take a, have a little bit more depth with some of these characters. And especially with the original Mulan being a really short movie being coming in at an hour and 28 minutes, and this one being an hour and 55 minutes, I mean, that's 30 minutes, not including the time that you're also going to shave off by not having songs. So i I'm really excited about this. That also doesn't seem terribly too long. Um, I'm also really excited that they cast authentic Asian actors for this. Uh, I mean, there's always going to be the issue of they're speaking English in China, but yeah, this is made for an American audience. It's fine. They cast Asian people. We're good. I, I, I'm a little bit more optimistic about the Disney remakes than you are. I really loved The Jungle Book, actually, but maybe it was because of my experience. I saw it in theaters. I thought the gra- the The CG was just phenomenal, and I also was on a date, so that helps. (laughs) I don't think I've seen any of the other ones in theaters. Uh, I know my wife really likes the Cinderella and the Beauty and the Beast ones, so I'm going to have to watch those at some point. I have not, nor will I ever, catch Dumbo. And I quite like the Aladdin remake, actually. I I like it. it's, it's, It's actually different than the original movie. The basic story structure is the same, but there's a lot of things that they do correct about... The original Aladdin specifically gender roles with especially Jasmine there they make a lot of different changes for either just trying to make more logically more sense or some other things that I like about half of the changes because they are worth making a change for but about half the other changes I really just don't like at all a big example of that is Will Smith playing Chini is not always blue and he is in the cartoon Robin Williams' genie is always blue, and they, they're like, well, that doesn't make any sense. He's in the middle of the crowd in the Prince Ali play. Everybody would see a bright blue genie, and so Will Ferrell loses his blue and gets his natural skin tone. And like to me, that that makes total sense. Um, I think that the music is done really well in there. I think that uh, the CG is pretty great, um, at least visually looking. So I, I'm, n- I'm probably also never going to see the Lion King one, uh, but i would i would check
0: out aladdin maybe at some point uh i do like the original aladdin but it's just i have such a long watch list like on netflix and hbo max that i don't see myself carving out time to watch the live action aladdin movie
1: i mean that's a fair assessment i mean there's so much to watch but if ever if ever your wife is wanting to watch a, a disney movie or watch mm-hmm. something a little bit light then i mean that would be a great alternative That. But yeah, I, I don't know. I, I definitely wouldn't say push it to the top of your wish list, but to to get it on your radar would at least be good. Yeah. Uh, so what? So what else about this movie makes you excited about it?
0: Uh, it really is just the fact that it's so much different from the original, or that it looks like it'll be so much different. Because I've seen a lot of people, like on Twitter or in YouTube comments, saying, "Where's the music? Where's Mushu? That's you know, you're going to make it worse by leaving that stuff out." But I think that could almost inherently just make it better, or at least it'll inherently make it different. Um, Different doesn't always mean better, but that's going to make, you know, I think if something copies exactly from the original, which I have the impression that The Lion King did, then is it really that good on its own? If you're going to do what you were saying about Aladdin and, and going and change a few things, then that has its own value. But with Mulan, I'm very interested to see just how they'll make it different and how they'll stick to the original movie. I'm just I'm just interested. I think the action looks good. I think the acting looks good. It looks like her father is played by the same guy from The Farewell, which I thought he was great in The Farewell and I loved that movie. So I'm I'm excited to see him do something, you know, as mainstream as you can get with a Disney live action movie, which makes more money than just about anything else these days. But yeah, right. for me seeing the title Mulan and seeing it being genuine Asian actors and the fact that it's directed by a woman, it's not an Asian woman just looked it up. But I think that just gives it a lot of credibility for my, for me, since I love the story of Mulan and I love that they're giving it to the correct voices. That's just going to get me in the theater to see it when obviously when it's safe.
1: Yeah. I have a, I have two notes about what you said. So when, uh, right about the time that uh, Dumbo came out, I had this thought. I'm like, who is my ideal fantasy cast for a writer-director for these Disney Live Action remakes? Because I think the problem up until that point where that the movies were the exact same. I mean, Jungle Book is practically the same story. It's a little bit longer, and they don't have the the, mu- I mean, they have, uh, the slightest hint of music in them. But It's like uh, spoken it's- word. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, but who, who is my ideal to, to, to cast a different vision of this? And I can't remember all the things that I said, but I said I really want to see Damien Chazelle do The Great Mouse Detective. And my personal favorite is I want to see Quentin Tarantino do The Brave Little Toaster Goes to Mars. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and and that actually got brought up on Cip-Pop Weekly uh, right about the time Dumbo came out. And they said, well, actually, I think... I like the idea of your question, but I also don't think it's right because, I mean, Tim Burton as Dumbo, doing Dumbo is exactly what you're talking about. And that's just a travesty. So I think that this is the right direction. I think that this is a good way to to bring them in a little bit more serious light, to show that they can be different stories than the movies, uh, than the original movies. And especially because they have to understand who their audience is. And I think if they understand their audience is... Sure, it's going to be kids, but I think there's probably a bigger market for the people that are about our age that grew up with this movie and can know it back and forth. That they want to see something different, and Lion King is proof of that. Which I mean, box office is not proof of that, but uh, but critical reception, audience reception. I mean, sure, it made a billion dollars, but that's because people were going to go take people to see The Lion King no matter what happened. And I don't know. I think this is a step in the right direction. And also, you were talking about the cast. Yeah, I mean there's one big draw in this movie for me and that's Donnie Yen because mm-hmm. I'll watch anything that he's in and I, I absolutely love him. I think he's amazing in the Yip Man movies and he's my favorite character in Rogue One. So I'm, I'm here for Donnie Yen. Uh, I think the whole cast looked good. So there's a lot of people that I'm like, Oh, I've seen them before. Oh, I've seen him before too. I, I don't know these people by name necessarily except for Donnie Yen. But, um, but I had a, I had a really good time. Uh, see, uh, there's Jet Li in there too, but he's completely unrecognizable as the emperor to me.
0: Yeah. I didn't realize he was in there.
1: I'm excited to see what they do with that. The other thing I'm really excited about, there's four screenplay writers for this movie, you know, give or take, and two of them don't really have any experience. Uh, and then there's Rick Jaffa and Amanda Silver, which we recently talked about as the screenplay writers for Rise of the Planet of the Apes. So that to me is a big pro because as we talked about on that podcast, I, I think that that movie is really special. I think it's not my favorite of the trilogy, but I, I think that there's a lot of heart in that movie. Rise of the Planet of the Apes is a great job of an example of a movie that evolves from the source while still remaining true and intact. Because Rise of the Planet of the Apes was exactly what the Planet of the Apes franchise needed. That, that gives me a lot of encouragement for Rickshaw and Amanda Silver being on Wulan as well. And the director, you talked about her a little bit earlier. I don't recognize her for any from anything. She did The Zookeeper's Wife, which I know is held in high regard. It's been on my list I don't know if it's on HBO anymore, but it used to be. And so it was on my list for a while, but I I haven't gotten around to it.
0: Yeah, I haven't. Oh, I actually did, I have seen one thing that she directed, which is Whale Rider. Uh, and that's a really good movie. It's an indigenous movie about the Maori people who live in New Zealand. I had to watch that in a, like a cultural film class uh, in college. And a lot of times those movies are just kind of like four hours long we watched them over a couple class periods but that one was actually really well done um so i i think that's a good you know a good resume for her and you were just talking about rick joff and amanda silver they also wrote jurassic world the first one but not fallen kingdom okay and i think jurassic world the first one is it's solid i don't think overall the jurassic park franchise is that great apart from the original which is an all-timer i would but, agree I think uh, Jurassic Park is or Jurassic World is solid enough. It doesn't do to the same heights what they did with Rise of the Planet of the Apes, but I think it carries that same idea that you were talking about. Well, there was
1: also a little bit of more distance from the Planet of the Apes movies than there was. I mean, Jurassic World and Jurassic Park 3 are only like 10 years apart, maybe mm-hmm. at best. But I, I also, man, I I turned off Jurassic World the last time I watched it because it had been a while to see it. D- I don't personally think it holds up as well for repeat viewings, but I remember I really loved it in the theaters. And I think I saw it two or three times in theaters because I was with a, just a bunch of people that wanted to go see it in different groups. And, you know, you know, college. Mm-hmm. I, I remember really loving it at the time. But I maybe it's because I knew every beat. Maybe it's because you're right it doesn't it doesn't hold a candle to to the original Jurassic Park and none of the movies do but yeah I think overall yeah it's a really solid movie
0: and yeah I think overall it gives good hope for mulan just having yeah I think that's a good writing team a good director I like the indigenous cast I think uh there could be a lot of good in this mulan this mulan remake and I'm pretty excited for it honestly yeah
1: I'm about to say I don't I don't think I have anything more to add. Uh, I think your thoughts are my thoughts exactly. So do you have any other thing you want to add before we move on?
0: Yeah, our thoughts are probably similar apart from the fact that this was my favorite movie one of my favorite movies as a kid, so I have that history while you don't, but we we have similar ideas about it now.
1: Hey guys, we've got to talk about Manscaped for just a little bit and here's why this is super, super important. This is your last week to order Manscaped products with our discount code. So if you've been on the fence about getting some products, now is your last chance to do so with our discount code. Now if you haven't heard, Manscaped is the best in body's grooming. They offer precision engineered tools for all areas of your body, especially the sensitive ones. I've gotten to try and have told you about all their amazing products, so let me just send a reminder for you guys. The Lawnmower 3.0 is their third generation electric trimmer with ceramic blades to avoid nicks and irritations that come from traditional trimmers. Lawnmower 3.0 also comes with length guards, a charging stand, a 90 minute battery, an LED light that illuminates where you're trimming, and a 7,000 RPM motor that's really quite quiet. With the lawnmower 3.0, you'll really never need another trimmer or razor for your body again. But it's not just the lawnmower that they have. They also have the Crop Reviver, which gives you an extra spritz of freshness, which is perfect for when you get off of a day at work. And the Crop Preserver is an anti-chafing deodorant that is the saving grace for hot summer days like now. For real, I use this product nearly every day. They also have anti-chafing boxers, which is my favorite pair of underwear that I own. And they have a new cologne that I was fairly skeptical about since I already have a cologne that I really love. But I really like this one as well and got some more because I feel like this is more of an everyday one. I tried using their body wash slash shampoo as well. And while I'm not going to continue using this as my shampoo because I have one that I really love that also helps me with my thinning hair. uh, I am going to switch this as my, I have already actually switched this as my regular body wash because it really is that good. All their products are made with active pH balance for the chemistry in your body. Uh, It has aloe vera, so it leaves you with a soothing sensation. And honestly, the smell is just really good. You can even get a travel bag made with some really nice leather, perfect to carry all of your body grooming needs. And lastly, you can bundle up all these products together in different packages that all feature something special such as clipper sets or uh, fun mats for for shaving on to gather up all the hair. It's just a a lot of fun things in these bundles. Uh, T-shirts are in some of these bundles. Uh, So just their bundles are really great guys i love these products so much that i'm going to keep getting manscaped products even after this promo expires so uh, i I, like i told you i've already switched over to my that as my new body wash Um, i really like the crop reviver and the crop preserver Uh, i am going to keep on getting blades to change out my blades on the lawnmower 3.0 i've already ordered another pair of boxers i've already ordered another cologne bottle and yeah, I just I don't plan on stopping ordering products from Manscaped anytime soon. But because I love this so much and because Manscaped is wanted to get you guys to try some of their stuff, all you have to do is go to manscaped.com, get what you want, put it in the cart, and use the promo code SWR at checkout. That will give you 20% off your order and free shipping. And frankly, prices on the website are even pretty good. So 20% off is a great deal. That's 20% off and free shipping at manscaped.com with promo code SWR. But now, let's get on with the show and dive back into our SIF topic. It's time for us to talk about the SIF topic. This time, we're talking about some goats, because always that's what's going to be happening when Robert's on the show. We've got two movies for you this week, uh, one that Robert had seen that I had not, and one that I had seen that Robert had not, which is typically going to be our format that we're going to strive for. Uh, And we're going to start off with a movie that I had seen that Robert had not, Dead Poets Society, now we talked about these movies being ones that we want to be released before we were born, so 1994 or earlier, and are typically held in really high regard, might even say the greatest of all time. Dead Poets Society released in 1989, so it definitely does clear that. I couldn't find anywhere to stream it if you're interested in watching it. By the way, we should also start off by the saying, for this section, really for the whole podcast, always, we're not going to worry about spoilers, because... We Mm -hmm. have to talk about spoilers for some of these things. And frankly, a lot of these movies are 30, 40 years old. So I can spoil a 40-year-old movie and not feel bad about it. So spoiler warning, if you're really interested in seeing any of these, take a pause. But I couldn't find anywhere to stream this one. Doesn't mean it's not available to stream somewhere. It just means I couldn't find it. Okay, 1989 synopsis is Maverick teacher John Keating uses poetry to embolden his boarding school students to new heights of self-expression. This movie has an 8.1 on IMDb, which, by the way, is number 216 of all time. It's a 79 on Metacritic and an 84 on Rotten Tomatoes. It won the Oscar for Best Original Screenplay. It was nominated for Best Picture, Best Acting with Robin Williams, and Best Directing with Peter Weir. The AFI-listed Carpe Diem, sees the Day Boys, Make Your Lives Extraordinary is the 95th greatest line in movie history. It was number 52 on AFI's Most Inspiring Movies list. Uh, There was a novel based off of the movie, which I found quite interesting because, I mean, I know that novelizations do happen, but this feels like a movie that a book would have been written about and then the movie made about the book, but it was opposite. Uh, There was an off-Broadway stage adaptation that only ran for three months in 2016, but also starred Jason Jason Sudeikis, which I thought was interesting, but he was highly criticized, so that sounds about right. (laughs) And after Robin Williams' death, many took to social media to make their own Oh Captain, My Captain moment. So, Robert, before we get into what you thought about the movie exactly, explain yourself. Why have you not seen this movie yet?
0: It was just pretty much with like a lot of movies that I didn't have any access to it. Um, You were just talking about how it's not streaming anywhere for free or with a subscription like Netflix or Hulu or anything like that. So I've just never had the chance to see it that way. I broke down for this podcast and paid the three bucks to rent it on iTunes.
1: Cool. I saw this in high school as part of a film as literature class. Uh, no, no, it was just English class. Um, they showed it like junior year. Uh, and I saw it again, uh, only seen it, I think, three times. But uh, that being said, you just checked it out for the first time. Robert, did you like this movie? Love it, hate it, just like it, or just okay?
0: Uh, I would say I loved this movie. It was different than I was expecting towards the end. But overall, I, I loved everything that that it had to say, that it went into. I loved Robin Williams, obviously, um, but he wasn't as much of the main character as I was expecting, so I liked Robert Sean Leonard and Ethan Hawke, who were pretty much the main uh, high school boys. Pretty much everything about this movie is perfect. I didn't give it a 10. I gave it a, a 9 out of 10 when I ranked it, or rated it on IMDb. That's normally just because I reserve 10s for something that I think I'm going to watch a million times and I'm going to love forever. And if I ever get bored for like two minutes or more in a movie, or if I ever feel like it's dragging even for the shortest amount of time, then I'll just knock it down. And that's just how I felt about Dead Poet Society. But overall, I thought it was incredibly great. And it lived up to the hype that I've always heard about.
1: I looked at IMDb. I had rated this at a nine. I'm probably going to go to an eight. Actually, it probably sunk just the smallest bit in my book, only because I think you're right. It does drag at some moments. I think the end, the, the beginning is quite a bit slow. Uh, that's to me the part that drags and maybe it's because on repeat watches you kind of already know the setup. You kind of know like just just get me Robin Williams teaching in class. And it takes probably what, 30 minutes for him to actually start teaching.
0: Yeah, probably 20, 30 min- minutes.
1: By the way, he's stellar in this movie. Yeah. We can't go any farther without just saying Robin Williams is, is absolutely stellar. But I'm going to go ahead and say I really like this movie. I'm not quite in the loved it category. I think that about that 84 on Rotten Tomatoes, that 8.1 on IMDb is just about right. I think that's I think that's the Goldilocks <laughs> For me, the, the just right porridge. I think uh I, I think that's pretty fair. I don't know that I would understand if anybody didn't like this movie. Well, I mean to be fair, people that yeah. like movies. I don't yeah. see anybody that wouldn't like this movie, but people that only watch movies for Transformers and Fast and Furious, I could definitely see them not liking this movie, so it's it, it just wore on me a little bit. And maybe it's because I kinda know all the beats that the movie's gonna play. Uh, I don't I don't think there's anything overly complex about this movie. I think it's fairly simplistic, which I thought it was really interesting rewatching this. Like, I was just like, I don't know that there's anything that was revolutionary about this movie when it came out. And especially, you know, we talked about some of the awards that it got. I think Robin Williams was more than deserving of the Oscar nomination. You know, this definitely is Best Picture nomination. I would think that this would be a Best Picture winner. I don't understand the directing for Peter Rear. I just, I don't think there's anything special about his direction. I don't think there's anything special about the way this movie is shot. I don't think there's anything special about the way this movie edited. The only thing special to me about this movie is the acting, and specifically Robin Williams, which apparently Liam Neeson had the role before Peter Weir was hired and brought on. And then when Peter Weir was brought on, Liam Neeson stepped off, and uh, and then Mickey Rourke was brought on for that role, which that's really shocking to me. But then he left when they refused to make script changes based off of what he wanted the movie to be, and then... He quit, and they hired Robin Williams.
0: Did he want his board?
1: <laughs> he wanted his bird. That's right. <laughs> but yeah, so I, I mean, I, acting. I think Robin Williams is a killer, and you mentioned Robert Shaw Leonard. I think he's great. Uh, I'm kind of surprised he hasn't had yeah. a bigger career after this movie. Uh, you also mentioned Ethan Hawke. I think I think him and the rest of the boys are really solid. Uh, I don't think there's a weak link, but I also don't know that the rest of them are particularly outstanding either.
0: Yeah, no one else really stands out because I don't think they're just they're just not the characters who are really given that much attention. Sure. But yeah, I I think Robin Williams is incredible in this. I've seen Good Will Hunting a million times and that's top 25 for me. Oh yeah. So I kind of got those, those feels from, from this movie because I love the Robin Williams as a, as a dramatic actor kind of thing. Yep. And especially as a, as a soft and comforting figure to the people that, that he, that he is with. So in this case, it's, the character of Neil, and I think Ethan Hawke's character's name is Todd. Whereas in Good Will Hunting, he's obviously a really influential and important and comforting figure to Will. But here in Dead Poet Society, I just love the, the idea of Carpe Diem slash Seize the Day, especially in the context of this school. And I think that's what makes the, the Seize the Day idea so, so poignant in this movie. Because you can just say... For anyone who just lives their life, you can just say, carpe diem, seize the day, and they'll go out and do whatever. But these these boys are taught to live in such a structured life. They're not allowed to be creative. They're, their whole lives are planned out for them. There's the scene when Neil's dad from that 70s show tells him that you're going to be a doctor, you're going to go for, to school for 10 years, and he, he says that's pretty much a life sentence. Th- that's, that's sort of the, the situation they're in. They don't see any way out. You know, right from the beginning, I noticed right away in one of the opening shots, the like on the the first day of school ceremony, the boys are walking down the row with those banners and one of them says tradition. And as soon as I saw the tradition banner, I just thought, oh, gosh, like these these guys are in trouble for anyone who wants to, you know, step outside of any sort of line. And Robin Williams, he's the one that steps outside of the line first. And they, they kind of follow his indirect lead. So I, I personally didn't grow up in such a strict setting, but I know people who had strict parents, sort of like Neil did. Um, so I kind of sympathize with those kind of characters. So just seeing the idea of them, you know, living out carpe diem and then all the way till the end, I I really loved the ending and just how it wasn't like a, They all stand on their desks. Then we see Robin Williams being rehired because the Nolan, you know, the president of the school, he's like, oh, these guys are right. No, it's probably not changing. But these boys still know they understand the idea of carpe diem. And they're not going to be bound by these by these strict rules and and walls that they're that they're built that they would have been built into otherwise. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And uh, I, I want to double back down on Robin Williams' performances, because uh, you mentioned Goodwill Hunting, and yes, that movie is phenomenal, but I think it, it's really interesting in hindsight looking back at Williams' career and seeing the progression that he has. I don't think you get Goodwill Hunting without Dead Poet Society, and he even has Awakenings in the year after this, uh, and I, I, so I think there's a progression, but I also don't think you get Dead Poet Society without Good Morning Vietnam, which to me, he's like half comedy and half serious in that movie, and then Dead Poet Society is like a 80-20, and then awakenings is like a 90 10 and then all of a sudden you get to good Will hunting he's he, 95 he has, five. Funny, he, he has a couple funny yeah he has a couple funny lines you know about his wife farting all the time but right <laughs> but I, I i i think there's a really interesting progression that you see there and we're going to talk about robin williams in a movie next week that he's very not funny in insomnia i mean it, it, to me it's just a, a really really interesting progression i'm sure i'm missing some out of that but i mean to me those are the big the big milestones and but yeah, you're. I also didn't grow up in as strict a household as this. But you, you're. You're absolutely right. You get the tone of this movie immediately. You understand the characters within the first five minutes. And again, maybe that's why I, I didn't think it did well over a rewatch for me because um, I, I get I I know, and especially knowing I know that Robert Sean Leonard is the one who's going to kill himself at the at the near the end of this movie. And so I. I, I kind of remember his family life and I remember some things. There's there's some things that I I think the heart of this movie, I can't believe I totally forgot about this scene, is the scene with Robert Sean Leonard and Ethan Hawke and they're standing over the bridge and it's Ethan Hawke's birthday and for the second straight year in a row he gets this desk set that he didn't even want in the first place and it, it gets it really gets to show you an idea of these characters and it shows you the, also the pressure they're under because who gets this, what 16 year old a desk set? Right. The, the dad from that 70s show. But you mentioned him and He's he's really good in this role. He's playing Eric Foreman's mm-hmm. dad without the comedy elements, and uh, <laughs> and he's also again third watch of the movie. But it's the moment where he he goes into the office to find his son who has just shot himself. It's and I don't blame the actor. I completely been blame the director. There's a really stupid cheesy shot right there where it does like a like a slow mo, and then it does like a little bit of like a uh, like a fade with the colors, and then it just cuts to. Like it does a stop, like a freeze frame. And it's just like, and then it whites out. It's just, it's the, like.
0: I think I'm going to have to completely disagree with you there. Seeing this for the first time, I didn't know Neil killed himself or anything. The only thing I knew about this movie going in was Carpe Diem and that they stand on their desks. So seeing that scene, when the music started, when Neil, you know, takes off his shirt and he has his costume from the play, I realized that there's like a 95% chance this is going to end the way that it does end. I was hoping that it wouldn't, but it did, obviously. I think just that buildup of the music, just everything being so morose. And then finally, this man who doesn't seem like he has any care or any thought for his son's well-being apart from you know making his parents proud it kind of shows that it's all just a facade that he built up. He's pr- putting up walls inside, inside his own mind probably do- isn't doing it intentionally, but once he sees that his son is dead and that he's never, you know, every implication of your, your child dying, I think that all just comes flooding on top of him in that moment. And I know your problem is with the directing, but in his mind, all that is just all of a sudden in slow motion. He's not, he has to process what's going on, you know, at the snap of a finger, but it happens slowly because he realizes everything that he's done wrong that led him to this point. And you don't see him after this moment. So I, I really do feel like all of a sudden he just knows that it's his fault. And now that he's hugging the body and all that, it, it just, it really, it really, it, it hit me pretty hard. So yeah, sorry, I'll have to disagree with you on that part. I think that worked really well, but maybe again, that's because it's my first time seeing it. But I, I really do think it was done well.
1: To me, it just felt cliche and retro and like just very 1980s. And I mean, sure, 1989, yeah, I, I get it. But to me, it just, it didn't hold up very well. That's the one thing in this movie that I really thought kind of, I, I, that's the one thing I thought about this movie that I would change. But um, this was a really interesting watch for me for a movie because I thought all three times, I feel like this feels like a book on a screen. And you know, I talked a little bit about how there was a book that came after this, but I to me, there's not much about this movie that really screams a film. To me, this screams like this. This feels like somebody wrote this book, and I'm watching this book. Does that make sense to you? And did you have a similar feeling?
0: Uh, it makes sense, but I don't think I had a similar feeling because it kind of just reminds me of any sort of drama, like any sort of personal drama, like this. Um, so just to go with the Goodwill Hunting example, I guess you could say the same thing for Goodwill Hunting because there's not a lot that is like super cinematic about that. Like he he writes on the on the chalkboard and you see that sort of thing, or see him riding the the train. But a lot of it in both these movies, a lot of the emotion comes from the dialogue, and I think that's what you're getting at with it feeling like a book. But Maybe it's just because I prefer the medium of film over the medium of books, but I don't think I would have gotten the same emotion from a book, especially with how Robin Williams performs his, his role. Yeah, And I guess th- this could get into my one negative about the movie. It's that Robin Williams isn't in it enough. I felt like he was so magnetic every single time he's on screen yeah. because you just want to hear more of what he has to say, like what brought him to the point where he was able to carpe diem like I wish we could have learned a little bit about that because otherwise I love the impact that he has on the kids and I know overall that's that's the point of the movie is the impact that Keating has on uh, specifically Neil and Todd but overall it's maybe to the movie's detriment that Robin Williams is so good when it's trying to focus more on the kids that I wish there was more of Robin Williams but if it wasn't for him and the way that he performs the lines, like specifically the scene when, when Todd is, is up there performing the, the poem that comes to his mind, like in the moment, Robin Williams just gives such a genuine, like, I'm so proud of you for doing this. That I knew you had this in you. I just think Robin Williams makes this movie a movie.
1: Yeah. I think that's an amazing scene. I think that, that's the exception of Williams' character. You're absolutely right. But I don't know, to me, I just I just thought, this, also this movie has no right to be as fascinating or as interesting as it is. Uh, and it's it's entirely because of the characters, it's entirely because of the actors, and it's mostly because of Robin Williams. Because uh, any second he's on the screen is definitely part of that 70% that I'm really paying attention. But um, I also have this thought coming through my head. Is Do you think, let's say Mickey Rourke was in this movie instead of uh, Robin Williams, or perhaps even Liam Neeson, which I think he's a better actor than Mickey Work, uh, and uh, definitely more suitable to this role than Mickey Warwick. But let's let's say it's it's one of those two. Do you think this movie is as remembered and as high regard, or do you think that this movie is lost in 1989? Like I, I to me, I thought without Williams in this role, this movie would be kind of like the King speech where everybody loved it at the time and nobody's talked about it in ten years.
0: I think it would be somewhere between those two extremes. I don't think it would be as loved as it is because like we've been talking about this whole time, I think Robin Williams makes this movie what it is, but especially if you put Liam Neeson in there, who the last 10, 15 years of his career has, has been franchise action movies where pretty much there's a Liam Neeson cinematic universe. But before that he did a lot of like dramatic stuff. Yeah. Specifically like the mission or uh, Schindler's list. Yep. he, he has that ability. So I think if he was the one over Mickey Rourke, I think maybe it would be remembered 85% of the way it's remembered now. Um, okay. Because I still think, you know, the idea of carpe diem and all that, like I talked about at the very beginning of our conversation on this movie, I think that idea in this context is so poignant and so perfect, but yeah, Robin Williams makes it what it is. So I see where you're coming from with the question. And I definitely don't think it would be as forgotten as the king's speech.
1: Okay, cool. Well, hey, do you have any other things you want to add before we move on to Is This a Goat?
0: Yeah, I'll just add one more thing to say that I love how it's a group of guys encouraging each other to excel in the arts. Like there's not a single scene of anyone saying, why do you want to go act in a play? Or why are you so interested in poetry? Go play football or something like that. It's all, yeah, let's let's form this club about reading poetry and digging into our emotions and who we are at our core. or you're interested in doing this play, dude, go for it. And I, I just really loved that, that sort of thing, especially from the time that it was made.
1: Yeah, I, I totally agree with that sentiment. The, the only character that I feel maybe has a little bit of that sentiment in him that like, you know, why would you go do poetry is the, uh, uh I can't remember the character's name, but he's the one he, he's the, he's definitely the clown of the group. He brings the saxophone to the game for one time.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, I can't remember the name of the character because he's one of like seven Kind of secondary characters, and right. but but even then, like he still really gets into it. He, that very well could be his character, but they very deliberately choose not to do it. I think his motivations are towards well, poetry attracts girls, but <laughs> yeah, but he's I the think,
0: one that brings the girls, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. But very, I think also think very quickly that changes, and mm-hmm. it, yes, you're, you're absolutely right. It's a bunch of guys encouraging a bunch of guys to do something that, especially for 1989, is considered predominantly feminine and it's kind of a miracle that this movie i guess it's not really a miracle because it's not like it didn't hold it it was ahead of its time that's the best way to say it so yeah so then now we're going to move on to asking ourselves is this movie a goat but first i really wanted to define that because because of watching this movie i had a hard time deciding is this movie a goat we talked about seven samurai and his girl friday we talked about whether those would be goats or not we kind of gave a little bit differing opinions on those. And what I wanted to do is I wanted to talk with you and just break down what is our definition for if these movies are goats. We talked about seven Samurai being a movie that I really feel if you took out of existence completely changes the landscape of film. And for that reason, it's a goat and I don't, I didn't feel the same for his girl Friday, but I don't, I don't know that i necessarily love that classification because that's the feet. That's the very few. That's that's the one percent, And uh, so I, I, I tried to brainstorm a little bit about what might be a go, and so that might be one of them: is it movies that change the landscape of cinema? Uh, movies that are just made well uh, could be one. Uh, is it movies that are important? Is it movies that that if they were if they never existed, that there would just feel like a gap in society? Or is this just a, essentially us assembling our own criterion collection? What do you think, Robert?
0: I think it's a mix between a lot of the stuff that you just said. I don't think this movie changed the landscape the landscape of cinema, but I think it's extremely well made. Um I think there would be a missing piece if it never came out. But also at the end of the day, at the end of the day it's just you and I putting together a group of movies, so it is sort of just our own criterion. When I think about what should be a GOAT, it's like what has stood the test of time. So this movie is 31 years old now. So I feel like that should alone be a qualification people still talk about it like when we first in our sif pop group when we first heard that ben was going to be taking over as managing editor evan right away sent i think it was evan sent in our slack chat oh captain my captain so yes right right away i think that's just a good qualification people quote like that that line of that poem because of this movie and they use it the way that they do because of it I think, like we've talked about, if this was Liam Neeson, maybe it wouldn't be a GOAT, but since it is Robin Williams, and, and because Robin Williams, every time he did something dramatic, was so incredible, I think the overall, yes, I think 100% this is a GOAT. It's stood the test of time. There would be something missing because of this incredible Robin Williams performance and because of this like uh, iconic film quote with the Carpe DMC's The Day and Oh, Captain, My Captain. I think unquestionably this would be a go.
1: Okay, yeah I, I i just I just don't know based off the criteria. So maybe uh, would it be fair to say that these are movies that, if they were released exactly as they are today, should be nominated for best picture? Like, is that maybe a diff- like a more definitive way we can?
0: Yeah, that would, I think that would be a good way to put it. Do you think Seven Samurai would would fit that? Because um, it would be a difficult way to look at something that's influential.
1: That's fair. that's fair.
0: If Seven, Seven Samurai was released today, it would be like... God, I hope another so. Another action movie. <laughs> right.
1: Uh, yeah, simplistic action movie. Right. I mean, and and part of this, you know, this is a movie podcast about our opinion. So I think our opinions kind of get influenced that a little bit. I, I Personally, I see this a little bit more as like, somebody has given me authority to say, assemble your own criterion collection you got to really be like be picky be like these are movies that are definitely the greatest of all time we want to release them as part of this collection so i mean i, I think that's a little bit how i see it but i think I, I think leaving a little bit of flexibility in that answer is is totally okay a little bit different definitions but at least as long as we've got that out there and people understand why we're basing our stuff off of what we are and we tend to walk through that, i think that's totally okay
0: so it's kind of if we wanted to give someone a long list of movies to watch if they wanted to get into movie history would said movie get onto that list.
1: I think yeah. I think that's a pretty good part to to help judge whether whether a movie is a goat. I think but and maybe I think that's part of the puzzle. So Sure. Anyway, uh, with with all that said, uh, I think that this story is a goat. I think Robin Williams' performance is a goat. I just don't think that this movie is a goat. I think it's I think it's really good. I told you I liked it a lot and I le- definitely loved it more when I was when I first experienced it. I just I don't know that I would put this in the 100 most definitive movies of all time. And I, again, I really, I really love it. I just, I'm not recommending this over seven samurai or it's not about doing over something. It's just, again, I think the story is an amazing story. That is a go. I think the performance is great. I just don't know that the movie as a whole to me is quite there. This is right on the border for me. So ask me again in a week and I might say, yeah, 100% just like you, but, uh, but again, this is just our opinion, and that's all that matters, right?
0: Yeah, and then it'll be interesting because the next movie—not to get into that too quickly—but will be like *The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly*, which, when we talk about that, it's going to be this is something from the '60s that's influenced a lot of stuff. That's a lot of people have said in, is an all-timer. So we'll have to think about that when we get to something that's a little bit different based on when it was released to Dead yeah, Boat uh, Society.
1: Yep. Well, hey, let's just go ahead and, and get into the good, the bag of the get then. This is a 1967 movie. If you're interested, it is streaming on Netflix. It was streaming on prime when I caught it, but it has been taken off so you can catch it on Netflix. Uh, it is a three hour long movie, by the way, FYI, uh, primarily starring, uh, Clint, I mean, Clint Eastwood is the headliner, but he doesn't have the most screen time actually, but synopsis for this movie is a bounty hunting scam joins two men in an uneasy alliance against the third in a race to find a fortune of gold buried in a remote cemetery. A couple of fun facts about this movie is an 8.8 on IMDb, which is the ninth highest rated movie of all time, a 90 on Metacritic and a 97% on Rotten Tomatoes. This is number 78 on Rotten Tomatoes, 100 greatest movies of all time. And uh, it is on Time's list of 100 greatest movies of the century. Quentin Tarantino said that this is the best directed movie of all time and the greatest achievement in the history of cinema, and a sequel was actually written for this movie that takes place 20 years later and has Tuco chasing Blondie's grandson for the gold. Clint Eastwood was interested, but Sergio Leone, the director of this movie, didn't want to continue the man with no name story any further. And one final note is that this is Cif Pop Weekly host Andrew Ormsby's favorite movie of all time, which Robert reminded me of that that this is an important piece of the stories this film's legacy for us so since this is the movie that i haven't seen i've got to explain myself and it's primarily just i tried to watch this once i got about half hour and it turned it off i just don't like westerns and also that to be fair that one time that i turned it on i was not paying attention to it i put it on in the background because like when am i going to find three hours to sit down and watch and it was the director's cut so it's three and a half hours when am i going to find time to do this well how about while i'm unpacking boxes and whatnot and i just no, it was not a good idea. Um, <laughs> but I just I don't like older westerns. I love newer westerns. I, I love Three Ten to Yuma, the James Mangold version, and the the Coen Brothers True Grit, and um, the I mean Logan to me is a western. I I really like <laughs> modern westerns. We you, we talked about Magnificent Seven. I like that one. Okay, the new one. I just I don't know. I, I don't like older westerns at all, and that's why I never actually saw this movie in full. What about you, Robert? When did you first see
0: it? A few months ago, it was another the same thing as pretty much every classic that, I, that I've that i missed, is that I was just waiting for it to come on streaming, and it popped on Netflix, so I watched it. And to give it a rating, I'm teetering on super high side of liked it slash low side of loved it. Just because I think this movie is great. If it wasn't for this music, maybe it wouldn't be as great, but overall it's just an incredible movie. Yes, it is long, but it kind of just sets you in this world and, and makes you a part of of this story um, as Blondie, Tuco, and Angel Eyes all go after this this money buried in a cemetery. I think, yeah, this, this movie is just incredible just because of the mixture between Clint Eastwood, the direction between Sergio Leone, and the music from the now late Ennio Morricone.
1: Yeah, I... This is gonna be that one thing that I said I'm gonna lose some people that like me. I think this movie is just okay. I'm right. I'm right in the middle. of Five stars out of ten. Oof. I know. And I, I really wanted to like this movie, and I just, I just didn't. A lot of it is for. Well, anyway, we'll just start talking about the movie then. I, I don't know if this originated that, uh, that that classic, that the whistle. The <laughs> or if or if that was like i'm a pretty thing. sure it
0: did i, I think yeah. it
1: did as well uh, i mean especially since this is 1967 but i mean to me that like that is absolutely iconic and so the, i mean the score is iconic and it's it's definitely one of the best scores that there has ever been absolutely and yes this movie is long you mentioned that but to me it really feels long it really feels like five hours not three and a half i felt this movie was longer than seven samurai and it's half an hour shorter which half an hour is not much time, but I felt like this movie was an eternity, and a lot of that's just because I don't like westerns. But it's also there's so much that goes on in this movie. This could this movie could be a mini series today. They could easily take the same beginning and end and turn it into a ten episode HBO series, and like would not cover any new ground. But uh, I and and a lot of it just a lot of it feels unnecessary to me. Um, especially, and I know you want to talk about it later, but especially the final Civil War battle is it completely feels like just didn't need this 20 minute chunk in there. And you know maybe I'm wrong. And I, I don't know. I probably am because I'm clearly in the 3% from Rotten Tomatoes that said, I don't like this movie, but <laughs> to me, this movie's just okay. I will say this though. This is probably my favorite of Westerns made before the 1990s. It just shows you how much I really don't like Westerns because a lot of them are just the same basic plot. Gunslinger, Outlaws, it. it's the seventh samurai plot, is what it is.
0: Yeah, I will agree with you. The reason it's not a 10 out of 10 for me, it's a 9 out of 10. The reason it's not a 10 is because of the Civil War stuff, um, especially the blowing up the bridge. It kind of just seems like they put that there because they wanted one more thing for Tuco and Blondie to have to do. Yep. I don't really understand the the narrative reason for it. Um, maybe this is just me not knowing my American history well enough, which is highly possible. But I don't really understand the need to tie in Civil War stuff. Um, I think it could have been perfect without that. So there's the the point where they get caught by the, the Confederate Army. Well, Union, Union Army. Union. Confederate Army? Union. Yeah, they get caught by the Union Army. I'm sorry. They were masquerading as Confederate because they had gray dirt all over themselves to make it look like they were wearing the other uniform. But that is the other part where it really drags for me. Anytime that like explicitly Western stuff is happening, like they're raiding a town, or there's obviously the gun showdown, or the opening scene, anything like that is what I think is thrilling and what I really love about the movie. But the Civil War stuff is where it really starts to drag for me. But that'll be the extent of my negatives on... This film.
1: Well, I think you have one more negative about the film, just kind of in general, not so much about the, the, the things in the film, right? It's your first note.
0: Yeah. It, it does bother me that there's no Oxford comma in the, in the title. It's <laughs> the good, comma, the bad, and the ugly without a second comma. Yeah. And just as the writer and former English major, I was an English major for a day until I changed it. But still, that really bugs me.
1: Yeah, no, I agree as well.
0: But other than that, I think the movie is great. Yeah.
1: I, I, I want to – you touched on a point that I want to say my favorite moment for this movie I thought was just super creative, super brilliant, super unique to this movie was when, when Tuco and Blondie are riding on the stagecoach that they found a bunch of dead Confederate soldiers in. And they see what they believe to be the Confederate army coming and they they start Tuco starts shouting about viva la confederacy and just getting really all up in arms about that and then as this as the soldiers approach one of them takes his glove off and starts hitting his sleeve and you can see they're just covered in dirt they're not actually confederate soldiers they don't have the gray uniform they have the blue union soldiers and that's of course then they when they get taken to P.O. i i i love that moment to me that's a, that's a 10 out of 10 that's a really special moment
0: well this movie is actually really hilarious i think because there's the one scene towards the end when when Blondie is reading that note where it calls them idiots, and then Tuko's like, "What does it say?" He, he said, "It calls us idiots. It's for you." And <laughs> it's like, there's a lot of really funny moments like that. I love the the comedy that comes in this movie that you don't really, that I, I didn't really expect going in the first time. Yeah, I
1: I, I would share that sentiment. I thought uh, I thought this would be a pretty bleak movie, especially with the way that the the first half hour goes, but it's it has some of those really fun laugh out loud moments and going back to to the title of this movie it's called the good the bad the ugly and they also like make sure to tell you who is who it's not one of those things that you have to figure out as the movie goes along i think it's really interesting that blondie is a good character when like objectively he's he's not like from the start of the movie all the way to the end i mean sure he's our protagonist and he's the one that out of all three of the characters he's the one that i want to see succeed the most but he's making a living being hired by outlaws to collect a bounty and then free them before he's actually hung and then go to the next town and do the same exact thing like that's I mean, the only morally good uh, objectively morally good way i see of doing that same scenario is making the agreement with the outlaw but not rescuing him like i it's just to me it's funny that they call this a good guy and he's, he's not
0: yeah and that's actually one of the things i wanted to t- to touch on because i think you're supposed to think about that idea because the whole movie is about greed and about a lawless society with the north and the south brother fighting against brother that's the whole the famous way to describe the united states civil war it seems it seems like it's very morally am- ambiguous the whole way through um so in this specific context which is different from our current context the way that Our American system should be. Maybe Blondie is the good, while Tuco is the ugly and Angel Eyes is the bad. Because Angel Eyes is the one who's objectively his whole thing is to go out and collect bounties by killing people. Tuco, he's just kind of rascally. He goes out and he's always messing with people. He was ready to just leave Blondie to die until he found out he knew where the money was the $200,000. And Blondie, yes, he does do what you were saying by freeing the outlaws. But I think he's the only one with some sort of moral center or at least the moral center that's closest to what we would deem to be that in our present moral and ethic code. So I think, yeah, the the movie it's asking you to think about that and do exactly what you're doing. Say he's called the, the good, but he's not Superman. You know, he's not incorruptible. Sure. So, what does the good mean in this context, and what can goodness and badness, for lack of better, more descriptive terms, mean in our situation with a society that's upheld that upholds a specific set of moral ideals?
1: Sure. Let me let me ask you while we talk about these three main characters. Who's your favorite?
0: Uh, Probably Tuco, honestly, just because he's most fun.
1: I would say the same exact thing. I think again, Blondie's a character I want to root for. I want to win, but. Tuco is the most entertaining out of these three. I love watching him.
0: Yeah, but I do think all three of them are great because, like you said, Blondie is the one I'm rooting for and Angel Eyes is a great bad. I kind of root for him in the same way that I root for the Joker. It's just like he's such a good villain that I want to see him do villain stuff, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, you're talking about Joker and Suicide Squad, right? Yeah, of course.
0: (laughs) Definitely not the Dark Knight.
1: Right, right. I think Angel Eyes could have used a little bit more screen time. Uh, I think he's great when he's on screen. I just think he's, he, he definitely has significantly fewer. I mean, he's in the opening scene and then he's not until halfway through the movie. And I, I, I would have liked to see him have a little bit more, but I mean, we already talked a three hour movie. Maybe the director's cut. He does have some more. Uh, maybe, maybe that's part of it. They just thought they had to cut. I have no idea, but uh, I've got to talk about something. And, Gosh, this is this is the thing that did that did the worst for me. Uh, this is the reason why I don't like the movie the most, and it's that the sound mixing for this movie is absolutely terrible. There is it's very obvious that ninety percent of this dialogue is overdubbed very poorly in term of time, in terms of timing and in voice. Uh, especially the 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 Union commander at the very last Civil War battle they have, his voice is way too deep to be that person. It's it's distracting and annoying, and his. His lips don't match at all. And I I guess, I, I guess before I make a definitive statement saying, I hate that, this is Sergio Leone, an mm-hmm. Italian director. This movie was not filmed in Italian, was it?
0: That's what I'm not sure about. Because I personally just give it a pass because of the fact that it's a spaghetti Western and that it came out in 1967. And that is just kind of how it is. It really doesn't bother me that much. I forget about it when I start watching it. I've seen it three times, I think. I watched it twice in the last week, just in the background, um, because I can't devote the three hours on my own. But I only really notice it when the movie starts, because then I'm like, oh right, that this movie is like this. But I think it might be because of the fact that it was filmed in Italy, but I, sure. I'm not sure.
1: Well, all right, so according to IMDB it says language spoken Italian. So I guess I've gotta give it a little bit more grace, a little bit more of a pass. But subs overdubs, I I would rather much rather watch a subtitled movie where they're speaking Italian, although it wouldn't have made sense, Italian speaking or people speaking Italian in America during the Civil War time, but I'd rather have subtitles. But it, it's just the, the dubbing is terrible. I mostly thought that this would have had to have been because A, it is a spaghetti Western, but this Clint Eastwood is the star. I mean, as I would have thought. Mm-hmm. And the other reason is whenever Clint Eastwood speaks, he's very clearly speaking English, and there's even times that they have to dub his voice and it doesn't match. And so that was, so I guess I'm, I'm going to be a little bit more graceful for that. So I so maybe I'm at like six maybe seven stars max instead uh, I just that, to me that was a real really distracting watching the movie because I, I also tried to find uh, since I was watching it on prime I tried to switch it over to original language and then turn subtitles on but you can't do that and I also tried on Netflix and you couldn't and you can't do that it's it's still a negative for me but it, it's it's less severe now because uh, I didn't I was not fully aware of the historical context of this movie but uh it, it's it still makes it really hard to watch
0: yeah i get it i I'm, i guess i'm just able to compartmentalize and think of it as a product of, of its time and sure not be too bothered by it
1: and here's here's the other part is i'm biased i don't like westerns maybe i wanted to hate this movie I
0: just, <laughs> yeah
1: i don't know but there's, the, there's another part of this that i really found annoying is this movie kind of ex machina's blondie's blondie to safety in nearly every scene and definitely in every situation Uh, and the most distracting for this one to me is the scene where he's about to be hanged by tuco in the apartment and a cannon blast comes out of nowhere and takes out the wall that uh, it's just the whole building crumbles down and blondie made it's like one in a million chance and i get that that's like the point of literally deus ex machina but it's just like he's the luckiest character to ever be in in a movie
0: yeah, I get that. I, I I don't really have a rebuttal other than, again, it doesn't bother me. Just when everything else is so well done, there is that scene that you just talked about and then him getting saved by the stagecoach when Tuco has him out in the desert with no water and all that. Um, all of a sudden, there's a stagecoach that distracts Tuco. But yeah, I, I get where you're coming from with that, but yeah. still doesn't really detract. Well, from hey, it we, we
1: got to talk about the final, the, the ending, the last act of this movie. Uh, this, this, is, this is brilliant. Yeah, I, this is such a feature. This is so intense, even when I'm worn out for this already two and a two and a half hour journey so far, even when I'm already kind of tired of this movie. This is magnificent. I was absolutely blown away. I wish I wish to me that the that the leading up to it was a little bit better. But the, I mean, this is immediately like two positive stars right off the bat. Um, the the three way standoff between the, the good, the bad and the ugly are all, is is really, really, really intense, and the way that it plays out is 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 just it's incredible, as well as Tuco being left by Blondie, uh, hanging on the on the cross, and just kind of having to... It, it. felt very ending on Bad Max. Gosh, that that last thirty minutes is pure tension.
0: Yeah, and I would go even further, starting before the them standing in a triangle, showing down. It's when Tuco is. Running around the the cemetery, the graveyard, and this is where I think the music is most important, because I honestly think this movie would not be as great as it is if it isn't for the if it wasn't for the music being so incredibly perfect in this last half hour, because you see Tuco running around in circles for about three to five minutes, and. Imagine if the music wasn't up to that or if there was no music in that scene. It's just like, all right, when is this guy going to stop running around in circles and find the grave that he's looking for? But I'm so invested and I feel like I just have tunnel vision to the screen because of the music. It just feels like it's taking over my whole world and encompassing me in this, this movie and being like, all right, what is going to happen? And then from there leading up to the showdown, as it cuts back and forth to their faces, their hands, their eyes. Again, it's like three to five minutes that if the music wasn't so perfect, I think it would be less tense because I, I just love how at the very end, before they finally take out their guns and shoot, there's like a third of a second cut on their eyes, hands face. It, it just like goes so quickly and it just builds up because it's like, starts with the slow shots that linger for a second. and then shots they last less time until the very end when they're going bang 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 bang, cut, cut 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 i just love how that all builds up all the way till the end um if i don't know if there's a greater ending uh you were talking about great movie endings with whiplash and uh gone baby gone but i really don't know if there's a greater last 25 to 30 minutes in a movie than than in this
1: this top three, at least, uh, for greatest last acts. I mean, I'm also a really big fan. I think the Glorious Bastards* final act is, is just perfect. That too. And I, I'm sure I could name a couple off, couple other that if I thought about this beforehand. But yeah, absolutely, this is uh, this is one of the one of the top three best final acts man i wish i wish i liked the rest of the movie as much as i did this and also i want to go back to the legacy section where quentin tarantino called this movie the greatest cinematic achievement of all time and the best directed movie of all time and I, I just don't i just don't see it part of it is i understanding this movie came out in 1967 like i like i do take that into account but i still don't know that i see seven samurai came out before this and to me that's a more competently directed movie and uh to me, that I, I can understand the the same statements being made about Seven Samurai. I don't see those same statements being made about this movie that came out almost fifteen years later. I guess just ten years later, but I don't see what Tarantino sees. But also, like he has a very different mind than me, and that's a reason. That's a you know I'm Very grateful for what he's done for. I just I, I don't I don't see it.
0: It's interesting that you bring up Tarantino, though, because. It makes perfect sense that he feels that way. Yeah. Because you can feel the effects and inspiration of this movie in almost all of his movies. Obviously, Django, number one, being a Western, The Hateful Eight, to some extent. uh, You were talking about like super tense endings. You go Pulp Fiction and Inglorious Bastards there. The music in Django even sounds like the music in this one. You can just tell how much this movie influenced Quentin Tarantino. So, yeah, it was interesting that you brought that up.
1: I definitely see the influence that this has had on Tarantino. I just, I don't understand quite, I, I don't see it. And, you know, maybe I will with age or maybe I will with experience or also to to build off what you're saying, this might be the best scored movie of all time. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's maybe not my favorite soundtrack ever, but this is the most effective use or at least, at least the greatest achievement and really changed the game for the use of music in movies and yeah, there's no, there's no denying that. I gotta, I gotta ask a clarifying question about the ending. I, I don't think Blondie gets away with the money. Do you? I mean, he leaves it with Tuco, right?
0: No, he takes half of it.
1: Okay. I must have just spaced off for 10 seconds and missed that. Like, I must have got up to, to grab a drink or something. Okay. Yeah,
0: they had eight bags, I think. And he says, four for you, four for me. And he packs four on his horse and then takes them before he rides away.
1: Okay. Because I had a note here about, I think it's dumb that he doesn't get the money. And I get that Blondie was never in it for the money. He's literally just dragged along everywhere. And I, ha- I have a note in my notes that says Blondie should get at least ha- at least half. But I guess he go. gets half. And uh, yep. I think there's more than enough that that it warrants Blondie to to either kill toko or leave him for dead. I think maybe the better movie ending is when he takes half and rides off leaving him on the, on the cross. Uh, not turning, uh, standing on the cross. Not, not turning back to shoot the rope down. I mean, it's a good call back to the beginning. But... I think maybe the better ending is just leaving Tuco there and it's up to you to interpret what happens to him.
0: I think it emphasizes the point of Tuco being the ugly, you know, because he's still tied up. The only thing, he's just not on the noose anymore, but he's all tied up with his hands and feet. And he's still just going crazy, yelling, you son of a... And then the the music comes in before we can find out what he says. But I wonder what he says. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think it's just emphasizing the... reemphasizing the character traits of each character because at the very end it again gives the title cards of the good the bad and the ugly because the good is blondie getting away on his horse with the money um in this situation that's good the ugly is tuco tied up with the money but still trying needing to find a way to get out of the ropes all on his own in the middle of nowhere in a cemetery and the bad is angel eyes dead in a grave with no one there to mourn him and the grave not being covered in dirt. So he's just pretty much lying in a hole. It's not right. even technically a grave yet. So it's, right. it's saying, you know, the consequences of being each of these kinds of persons. So the good you get away for being good, the ugly, it might get you what you want. So Tuko gets the money, but he's not like in a perfect situation where he's running away on a horse, the way Blondie is. And when you're the bad your ultimate demise is just going to be going after money and nothing else at the cost of your own life and the lives of others around you. So I think it's, it's a perfect ending that emphasizes the the title of the movie and what the three titular characters have been the whole way through.
1: Yeah. Uh, I have, I have one more thing that I'm going to say, and then I'm just going to let you gush on anything else you want to on that movie. I think given our conversation and giving some clarifying questions that I had to ask, I'm going to change my rating of this movie from it's okay. to I'm on the low side. I liked it. Uh, I'm still yes. not going to go anywhere near as far as saying, I really like this movie or I love it. Uh, but mm-hmm. it, it, some it, the clarifying questions about the sound mixing and the ending uh, make me feel a little bit better about the movie. Talk about some of the themes. You know, I'm reminded of some of the good things. I really like the story. I just, I still think three hours is a bit excessive and uh, it, I just still don't like Westerns very much. So I, I'm, I'm going to change my rating to I liked it. I'm more probably on like a, maybe like a seven out of 10 at this point. Awesome. That's what I'm going to say. And I may look for however long you want, you just gush on whatever else you want to talk about this movie. Cause I know you really like this movie.
0: No. Yeah. I think I, I don't really have anything else specifically to gush about because like I said, I, I really love the beginning, the build up, just like setting the stakes of, of Angel Eyes killing that family and then going to the guy and telling him the information and then killing him anyway. It just shows that this guy's bad. Yes. you know. And then Tuco is just so much fun the entire way through. And then, like we talked about, Blondie is, is a good protagonist, even though he's got no official name. And then again, it's just, this: if the Civil War stuff wasn't there and it maybe was a little bit shorter, uh, I would think it's absolutely perfect and it would be one of my favorite movies ever but I still do think it's very, very great. And I still do. I, I think I would say I love it just because the music is so incredible. Um, actually, this whole time we've been recording, I've had the, the music in my head because I just watched it earlier today. It's just everything about the score. If it, like Like we've talked about, if it wasn't for the score, I don't think I would love it as much as I do. But the score is a part of the movie and it makes it just so, so great. Yeah. yeah, that's all the gushing I have to do. I love this movie, and if you're like us and you haven't seen it yet, I think you should go watch okay. it. So, you,
1: so you're so you definitely in the firm, this movie's a GOAT category?
0: This movie's a GOAT. This movie's a 9 out of 10. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. It's a goat. See,
1: here's the reason why I wanted to clarify. I, I do think this movie's a GOAT. Not because I love it, but because you, it's so influential, especially with the music. Even though I didn't personally love it, this has had such an impact on film history that there's no denying that this movie is a goat. Um, so uh, even though I like Dead Poet Society more, and I said I'm probably just teetering on uh, not, I, yeah, I. this movie's a goat.
0: And I still think it's watchable and able to be appreciated as a movie outside of the the context of its influence. Just because, like I keep saying, I was able to watch it and love it a few times now.
1: Great. Well, on the next goats, next time you're on, it's going to be in five weeks, actually, since there's a fifth week coming up next week. Um, it's gonna be in five weeks. We're going to be talking about two more goats. This is going to be rebel without a cause, which both of us haven't seen and rope Alfred Hitchcock's rope, which I've seen twice. And Robert has not seen. So if you're interested in checking these movies out before we talk about them, you've got five weeks to do so. That's rebel without a cause the James Dean classic and rope by Alfred Hitchcock. But before we move on, I really want to do this new segment where uh, after talking about the goats, man, out of of these so far four movies that we talked about, uh, seven samurai, his girl Friday, dead poet society and the good, the bad and the ugly. What's your favorite movie that we've seen?
0: My favorite, I would have to say is dead poet society, just because I feel like that's the one I might watch the most times going forward. And that's kind of how I, my biggest criteria for a favorite, but if we're going best, I would have to say "Good, the Bad, and the Ugly," but favorite is definitely "Dead Poet Society."
1: Yeah, I'm i I'm gonna go with Seven Samurai" for this. I think I probably will watch "Dead Poet Society" more times than any of the movies that we've seen so far. I mean, "His Girl Friday" is really fast paced and electric. I mean, I might wind up watching that one, especially it's relatively short, coming in at about ninety minutes. So, it's Seven Samurai," is just "Good, the Bad, and the Ugly" so far, just. Sometimes chores to, to sit down and find three and a half hours to watch a movie, which yeah. trying to find three and a half hours to do anything is really hard. So uh, I'm I'm still going to pick Seven Samurai. I don't I don't anticipate it'll be on the top of my list for terribly long. But uh, as of right now, I'm still going to stick with that. But now we're going to move on to the B plot. We have one for you this week. It comes from Robert's wife, Laura. And uh, Laura wanted to know, what's our favorite part about writing for Sif Pop? Robert, why don't you go ahead and answer that first?
0: I think my favorite part about writing for Sif Pop is easily the friends and connections I've made. Yeah. Um, Because I write for a lot of different places. I write for myself. I write for other websites, but I've not made friends the way I have at Sif Pop. I wouldn't be a regular guest on this podcast if it wasn't for our ability to connect with other people through Sif Pop. I wouldn't have gotten as into writing for Sif Pop if it wasn't for the connections, if it wasn't for people like you and Ben and Blake just being so much fun to pick on each other with uh, movie opinions on Twitter and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's definitely the connections. And Aaron Dicer, Papa Sift, he's set up a really good place to find community and friends.
1: Yeah, I com- I completely agree and uh, it, it that's my answer as well is the is the people and I'm gonna I, I'm gonna give a lot of that credit to Blake because Blake sort of assembled that and yes Aaron Dicer also gets a lot of credit but uh, but to Blake for Blake being the managing editor and setting up the slack channel for us that we get to, to talk amongst ourselves I mean the slack has been dramatically helpful for our community and so that's just been something that I really love being a part of but before this if I, I was tweeting about movies, uh, and you know some people that follow me on twitter frankly half the people that follow me on twitter probably don't care about my movie opinions but when <laughs> i started writing for Sif pop my my twitter feed really became primarily for writing about movies and uh, this this podcast wouldn't even exist without Sif pop and um right it's just been really good getting exactly like making good friends like you and ben and blake and uh, and even some some new writers have joined the team recently i'm really excited to kind of see how things are happening and but it's just been a, such a cool time. I mean, even talking with some of the people on the podcast. I mean, I'm really the thing I'm most excited for is to keep on talking with people like Shane and and Dexter, which have both already been on the show, and, and with Frank and kind of getting a little bit more of a uh, of an actual conversation going. I'm I'm really excited. I'm I'm really excited to see how the podcast affects us as a whole because now all of a sudden you can you can see and you can hear Frank and Dexter and Shane's and Roberts and Beth, like you could hear these guys talking and we got alex and caleb and Chantel and alice from australia as being honest like this i mean to me that's just so cool yeah so and also also i really love bantering back and forth uh i gave blake a little bit of hard time towards the end of his run just because there'd be movies that when he would assemble the best ever challenges i'm pretty sure him and aaron both finalized the order that should be in but i i often gave him crap for putting my movies at like Six or seven. I'm like, look, I'm, I'm not saying it needs to be, <laughs> be number one, but like, I wrote for the lookout, Joseph Gordon Levitt and Jeff Daniels. And I was like, there's, there's no way this is number six. I petitioned for it to be moved to number two or three. Just having fun with that. So, yeah. That's just been, a, it's just been really definitely my favorite part of writing for Sif Pop.
0: And it's even introduced us to people that aren't directly involved with Sif Pop. Yeah. You know, like uh, Jonathan Watkins or Josh Childs, you know. They don't do much on Cif pop itself, but I still interact with them sometimes on Twitter. And and it, it's a lot of fun just giving me a larger voice and just more connections for friends that I wouldn't have other, otherwise uh, known or met.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So now we're going to move on. we got one last thing for you. Thank Laura for her question, by the way. But what, before we go, what is one thing in pop culture that you want to tell everybody to watch or to avoid?
0: So you saw... What I put down here at the beginning, but you didn't know if I wanted to tell people to watch it or avoid it.
1: Man, I, I hope it's watch.
0: Yeah, it is. When Spike Lee's The Five Bloods came on Netflix, I wanted to watch a few more Spike Lee movies before I went and watched it. Uh, because at that point, I had only seen Do the Right Thing and Black Klansman. I've since watched She's Gotta Have It and Inside Man. And I still need to get to *The five Bloods. But I really liked She's Gotta Have It. Um, but I really loved Inside Man. That's an all-star cast that doesn't get talked about a lot. From Denzel to Clive Owen, Jodie Foster. It's got Chiwetel Ejiofor. Uh, it's, got, it's got a lot of people. And it's obviously a Spike Lee-directed movie. He's more well-known for movies like Do the Right Thing or Malcolm X or Black Klansman, which deal heavily with social issues, Which is which are all great and I understand. But I really loved the way that he did just a a bank heist movie. Just everything about it, I really loved it. Yeah, so I I want people to know, watch Inside Man.
1: Yeah, and Inside Man is my favorite Spike Lee movie. I haven't seen them all. I haven't seen She's Gotta Have It. But Inside Man is just such a great movie. And, I mean, apparently the theme for this week must be movies that have terrific endings. Because, man, the last five minutes of Inside Man are electric. So...
0: It's also my favorite Spike Lee movie. While, while I think Do the Right Thing and Black Klansman are probably better, like we were talking about earlier, better versus favorite, this one's definitely my favorite.
1: Well, and also better and more important. Yeah, Also, I yeah, think Black Klansman sure. Do the Right Thing are also definitely more important. Yeah. But I think Inside Man is just terrific. I, I'm going to talk about a movie, and I, but I know you've seen it, Rob, so I'm telling the listeners, I really want you to see this movie. And I know you've seen this because... You had it rated on Letterboxd as I was going through your list. Gotcha. It's one of those movies I'd never heard of when it came out. And this was like peak of me knowing everything about movies coming out. Never heard of this movie when it came out. And I've started seeing it recently because this, talk about a stacked cast. Uh, I'm going to talk about Short Term 12. Oh. Short Term 12 is written and directed by Destin Daniel Cretton, who most recently did Just Mercy. He wrote and directed that movie as well. Uh, Short, Short Term 12 has an 8.0 on IMDB. And just listen to this, Cast. I mean, this is a Brie Larson is your star, and this is the movie that got her the role for Room. She was a no-name when this movie was at Room, of course, her Oscar-winning performance. John Gallagher Jr., who I most known from Newsroom, uh, playing Jim, was is in this movie as another lead. And then Caitlin Deaver, in a very young role. I had already known who she was by this point because she was in season two of Justified. But this is before she's anywhere near where she is, you know, book smart and unbelievable this, this past year. Also, Stephanie Beatrice, Rosa from Brooklyn Nine-Nine, but also uh, not quite that. And Robbie Malek, this is right before he hit his big break with Mr. Robot. And, I mean, the standout for this movie is Lakeith Stanfield, who plays like, a, like an 18-year-old. And so this is really young Lakeith Stanfield uh, doing just an incredible performance. Man, I, I loved every second of this movie. And so I, I kept on seeing this because I would see John Gallagher Jr. Well, what else has he been? And I really want to see him. Or I looked up Stephanie Beatriz. What every single one of these actors? This is in their IMDb's like top four known for. And it's just I haven't even told you the story. The story is short term twelve itself is a residential treatment facility that navigates the troubled waters of the world of troubled youth, eighteen and under, and a 20-something staff. I mean, Brie Larson, John Gallagher Jr., uh, Stephanie Beatrice, Rami Malek, they're the staff. So it's these people, at least two of them, definitely spent time in short-term 12 at a youth and have their issues, and a lot of their issues are resurfacing. This is a really emotional movie. It's really hard to watch at some points. It's got some moments that will devastate you, and it's just—it's raw is probably the best way I can put it. But also, like, there's a couple moments that really made me laugh. There's a couple moments that are really wholesome and sweet. This movie just will make you feel a lot of the emotions. It's currently available to stream on Prime for free. Or if you don't have Prime, you can go to Vudu and check it out for free with ads. Might be available other places. I don't know. And I I bought the Blu-ray for 7 bucks because I I loved it that much. I was like, 7 bucks. that's a no-brainer. So short-term 12, 10 out of 10 10 for me.
0: Yeah, I I completely agree with everything you said. This is the movie that I like to point to when people unrightfully kind of knock Brie Larson's acting ability because it seems like these days it's popular to hate on Brie Larson for some reason maybe just because Captain Marvel wasn't very good but if you look at this and Room she is a great actress and then she before that was like doing supporting stuff she's even on a few episodes of Community wasn't she in Scott Pilgrim I think yes and uh
1: I like her in Kong Skull Island
0: she's also in uh Spectacular now, which I really like, with Shailene Woodley and Miles Teller. She's she's just really good in that small kind of role. So if you keep her out of like the big tentpole Captain Marvel slash Avengers, and look at her dramatic work, she is incredible. On my podcast, here is another shameless plug. I like to ask new guests, "What are three movies that you can tell me to help understand your tastes?" And I devised that question after I saw this movie. Because when I first saw this movie, I was like, "This is the kind of movie that I want to watch." It's like a small, intimate character drama that makes you think about a lot of bigger ideas, but it's really held together by by the performances and by the the writing of the characters. Yeah, I, I agree with everything you said. Also, a huge shout out to Lakeith Stanfield, who is incredible in everything that he's in. I'm almost finished catching up on Atlanta, and Atlanta has a lot of. A lot of great episodes that are, you know, about social problems. But Lakeith Stanfield, so funny and just my favorite part of the show every time he shows up. But then you'll see him in something like Knives Out, where he's a straight man, or Get Out, which is where I first heard of him. It's just Lakeith Stanfield and Brie Larson are great in everything that they're in, except Captain Marvel.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's already one of those people that everybody is saying, like, he's he's no longer somebody to look out for. He is the real yeah, deal. It's only a matter of time before everybody recognizes him, not just movie people. Uh, yeah, he's he's incredible. He's he, He's got to have an Oscar sometime soon. Oh,
0: for sure. And even, I know you don't like Uncut Gems, but I think he's great in Uncut Gems also.
1: Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think the acting, the performance is a great in Uncut Gems. Sure. The story that I seem to have an issue with. But yeah, yeah he's great in Uncut Gems. And to me, Short-Term 12 is his best performance. Yeah, honestly, I can't, I can't believe there wasn't an Oscar nomination for Best Supporting Actor in that. He's he's just incredible. So um, there you go. But uh, that's a wrap. Quick reminder that Sif Pop Writer's Room is part of the Studio DNA Network. You can check out other great shows at studiodna.media or searching Studio DNA in your podcast feed, wherever you listen to them. If you're interested in writing for SifPop.com or you want to get in contact with us, maybe send us a question to explore during the B plot then send us an email at writersroom at SifPop. Dot com And if you want to support the show, then you can also help help out with costs that we pay for out of pocket, such as fees, equipments and rentals, things like that. You can Venmo me at Schweitcastle or DM me on Twitter, also at Schweitcastle uh, for my PayPal email address and just uh, to, to send a little bit of support too. So Robert, it's been great having you on and, and where can people continue to have a conversation with you about all that we've talked about today?
0: Again, if you want to yell at me for my opinions on Gone Baby Gone and Whiplash, Find me at Twitter at underscore Rob's Thoughts and on Instagram at Robert's Thoughts. And of course, the Robert's Thoughts movie cast. Uh, the day that this episode drops, I'll also have an episode of that with my friend and fellow podcaster, Anthony Watkins, talking about Christopher Nolan's filmography. So check out, check out my podcast. I have a lot of fun on there.
1: Awesome. Uh, great to have you on the show again. Uh, really appreciate having you. Thanks for taking your time. And uh, we'll see you in five weeks for a new episode. Can't wait. Yeah, but until then, uh, back to the rider zoom for us.